Welcome to this episode of Be Life Tree. Today we're going to be talking to Nicola Peel. Nicola, could you tell us a bit about yourself and the work that you do? Good to be with you all. My job title is I'm a solutionist. For 20 years, went under the title of environmentalist. But sadly, that title, you know, has got some kind of negative connotations as well. People think that if you're an environmentalist, you're just a protester and you're just against, you know, all that's wrong in the world. And of course, there's a part of that, of the reality of we have to know what's going on. But my focus has always been on the solutions and, you know, what we can be doing at this time. So I've spent the last 20 years working in the Ecuadorian Amazon And my work there was to make a film. I made a documentary. I went from the headwaters in Ecuador all the way down river to Brazil. I made the film Blood of the Amazon. And when I first saw what had been left behind, this legacy of oil drilling in the Amazon, and it was one thing telling the story because most people don't even know there's oil drilling in the Amazon. So I kind of thought, well, okay, I really need to bring some awareness around this. But that then led me to seeing what was really needed. And that was that the indigenous people were drinking water straight from the rivers and the streams, which were contaminated by Chevron Texaco's a thousand pits that still remain in the Amazon and they are still overflowing into the rivers. And that is what the people are drinking, which is sadly why one of the highest um, leukemia rates in the world in children is the indigenous children in the Amazon. Oh, wow. And when I discovered that, I was like, whoa, how come we don't know about this? You know, we think of the Amazon and we think of the deforestation but we don't think of these terrible oil spills. So that was a bit of a kind of an eye opener. And I realized that the people really needed clean water. So I started a project to build rainwater systems with the families that were most in need. So I've built a few hundred families water systems and I will work with them. We've got to build it together. And um, so, yeah, so that was kind of like an immediate project of, you know, let's just give the people water and show them how to build filters. And again, I made like a little video so people could watch how to actually build their own filter using charcoal and sand. So and just collect the rain rather than collect the stream water. So that was one of my projects. Another one was to bring together scientists that work on mycoremediation, and that is the use of fungi, mushrooms, to clean up oil spills. And so we got a team together, and I'm the founder of the Amazon Microrenewal Project. And again, I made a documentary called Solution to the Pollution, Microremediation in the Amazon, talking about the potential of cleaning up this legacy of massive oil spills. And then lastly, and what I'm still working with up to date now is uh, with Rainforest Saver. It's a small charity that their work is to prevent deforestation by teaching agroforestry. 
So they came to me and they were just like, hey, you work in the Amazon. You know, are you interested in this? I was like, yeah, hey, anything that stops deforestation, I am down with. So I have the contacts. I went to the agricultural colleges and was like, hey, this is a super cool way of turning old, abandoned cattle fields, which obviously once were teeming Amazon rainforests. And so turning uh, these old fields back into fertile land so that they could again grow food. So this system of it's what's known as alley cropping. We grow trees in alleys and then we cut them and we drop all the kind of the leaf matter and the twigs into the middle. We take the wood away to turn into biochar and everything else rots down and turns into compost. And so afterwards, that soil becomes fertile once again, and they can grow whatever they like, whether that be yucca or maize or beans or staple foods. Or what's been happening now is a bit of a surprise to us. and It wasn't the plan. They've been growing coffee and cacao. Mm, wow. Yeah. This is it, a big one. Yeah, it feels really exciting. And uh, listeners, I've been sitting over here smiling because the thing about Nicola that um, I've really appreciated through knowing her over the last couple of days is she lives everything that she preaches and um, fights for. And so I can really see why you shifted your name from environmentalist to solutionist, because even in your description of everything you've done, you've taken a problem and tried to find a way through it for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And what's, I'm recruiting, I'm recruiting, you know, I need, you know, we need more solutionists because way too many people just focus on the problem. And so therefore, if we can't see a future, we're never going to get there. If we can't see the solutions, then we don't create them. So I think it's a real, you know, at this time with the ecological and climate breakdown that we're experiencing right now, we need all hands on deck and everybody kind of going, okay, you know, what, what bit can I do? You know, what's my bit in the picture and, and what can I create? So, you know, it's exciting times when people step into their own power and say, you know, okay, you know, these are my skills and this is what I could offer. Yeah. So we are active participants in our lives and in the world and in nature as long as we become aware of that power and our ability to change. One of the things I was wondering when you were speaking was, so you've had 20 years of being in your work and being in yourself. Do you have any key moments that really kind of stick out as, ah, oh, I will never forget this moment in my life? Yeah, definitely. Where something which I remind, kind of remind myself of often is not just the kind of, you know, most of my time it's pretty kind of doom and gloom working with it. But then I get taken to magical places that only the local peoples know and share. And um, so the one I think of immediately is this just absolutely stunning waterfall where, you know, it's above the, the kind of the headwaters of the spills. It's like perfectly clean water. And I could float in this beautiful pool of water looking up at the waterfall and I could just drink the water whilst swimming in it. 
So being in those places where it's like these Edens, these paradises that still do exist, few and far between. But um, yeah, going to these places where there's nobody else and to experience them alone uh, you know, has been really powerful to go out to these kind of magical, magical places. So yes, these images will always stay with me. And I'm just having this vision of you floating on your back under your waterfall and really connecting in the moment. And as you connect in those moments in nature, like what have you learned about yourself? That I suppose anything is possible. That you just keep on keeping on. You know, we have obstacles. They're like the rocks in the river and you've just got to find a way to move past the boulders and just keep on going. That anything is possible. <laughs> I'm just thinking about that as you say it because it really fits with that, your description of yourself as a solutionist as well, you know? Has being in nature and being in the Amazon shaped that definition of a solutionist for yourself? Yeah, I think so. And, and also we can really overcomplicate things in the West. Whereas sometimes the best solutions are the simplest ones. And, you know, the people, friends and people I work with in, in Ecuador, all they need is a machete, you know, and we've got all these tools we've got, you know, you look at somebody's tool shed here and it's like full of all the, all the tools and all the gadgets. And they seem to be able to do absolutely everything just with one tool. So, you know, like seeing that kind of simplification of you got a problem, well, hey, grab a machete and you can fix it, um, has been quite interesting of seeing that way of solving problems without expense or without, you know, tools that, you know, you may not have. So it's, it's shown me that actually, yeah, sometimes it doesn't need to be complicated and really how to, to learn from nature and to simplify, you know, there is this incredible complexity, but there's also a simplicity. And I think we can get lost in the complexity and forget that sometimes, you know, it's the simple things in life, which are so important. Yeah. And it reminds me of what you just said about, you know, your project with rejuvenating the soil, right? It, in a way, it's complex because it all got deforested. It it was all taken, and yet the solution is to to give nature back what it was taken. Absolutely. And starting this whole process of then having the soil that can then offer the people everything they need, the crops they need, the coffee. I couldn't live without coffee, but yeah, the the simple things that then gives them a whole livelihood and a new a new way of being. I think soil is a really great analogy because to most people, you know, they think of soil and they just think of dirt and it's just this brown stuff and it's just there to grow food in. And, you know, this kind of simple way the, you know, humans currently are looking at soil, but now we are starting really to understand soil and how complex it is and how incredible it is. I mean, whoa, there are so many life forms that live in the soil. 
and you know all that it does and you know it's way more than just being a substrate to grow food in and I think that that's been something that's been really kind of undervalued and which has been the way that you know we've treated it with you know loads of agrochemicals and farmers just it's all about growing food and just throwing as much fertilizer on the soil as you can and instead of actually understanding the soil as living and looking at it through, you know, if we ask farmers, you know, which they need to be doing, have you looked at your soil through a microscope? You know, how alive is your soil? Is it really healthy? You know, most farmers would kind of look at you and go like, what? But hey, in 50 years time, soil health will be an absolute integral part to farming. So it's about moving from this idea of something which is really simple to actually understanding the complexity and, and what's so important about soil. I think I was reading a research the other day about this, which said that soil is a natural antidepressant. You know, if you want to feel better, planting, putting your hands in the soil and taking in the energy is something that psychologically makes you feel better. And I was like, wow, I thought I knew this. It was intuitive. But now we have all of the research coming out of the eco-psychology kind of field about the psychological benefits it then gives us as well. Yeah, and the physical, I mean, which is why I've always said, oh, let the kids play in the dirt. And that's because, you know, there's so much good bacteria. There's much more good bacteria than any bad bacteria. And we need that for our gut health. So, you know, it's really important to, yeah, like not be over clean and anti-backing your hands all the time. And you know. so, yeah, I mean, we know also the smell after the rain of soil. You know, it's a really powerful smell. And so, yeah, it affects us on so many levels. Ah, and I made a face just now, listeners, but you can't see me. But I was like, ah, I always smell, you know, the smell after the rain, it always smells a little bit dewy, a little bit like happy, a little bit something. And now I know why. Yeah, it's, it's, it is so loaded with, you know, I mean, there is just so much going on in soil. and I mean, I really encourage the, the listeners to, you know, go find out afterwards what lives in soil because it ain't just worms. <laughs> <laughs> or encouraging people to go roll in the dark. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many people are actually going to do that. Yeah. But... You, you can spend a fortune going to some private spa and having a mud bath. To be honest, I've done that multiple times and it's lovely. <laughs> but you're right, I could just do it in my backyard and then chill with the sun. Okay, yeah. chill for this weekend. <laughs> and so, I bet you'd have a smile on your face if you did it. Uh, you know what? I'm sure I would. I'm sure I would. Another thing that you really talk about in your work is biomimicry. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I think my favorite definition comes from Janine Benyus, who is, you know, one of the kind of stars and, and the person that really kind of put the name biomimicry on the table. And, and she, her definition is biomimicry is the conscious emulation of life's genius. <laughs> wait, wait, say that again. The conscious emulation of life's genius. That kind of sums it up, you know, I mean, you know, we're talking about over three billion years of evolution. And what she also says is that failures are fossils. 
what doesn't work is no longer still here. If it works, it is adapted and it is using all sorts of strategies. So in biomimicry, what we're looking at are the form, the function and the, the process that nature uses. So some people will just be interested if you look under, especially an electron scanning microscope, it's like a whole other world. Architects will be looking at the structure of something to see how you can use less materials and have a building which is much stronger. Or you could be looking at it for material design, you know, packaging which biodegrades. And so learning from nature's, you know, biology and nature's chemistry, we got to move away from all this toxic stuff we're making. And I, I learned recently, this is a classic, that hippos that hang out in the middle of the African sun don't get burnt. But if we were to be lying in the water in the sun, you know, we would be burning. And so what do we do? We cover ourselves in all these like petrochemical sunscreens. But the hippo just creates this protein that naturally protects it from the sun. Oh. So we just need to kind of like ask the hippo, hey, dude, what is this protein? Because if we could like mimic that and make a natural sunscreen that wasn't full of all these toxic chemicals and petrochemicals, you know, it would be much better for our health and the environments because people forget they cover themselves in all this sunscreen and then they go and jump in some beautiful river or some sea where they've seen that it really affects the coral and the life from using these sunscreens. So the kind of knock-on effect of learning about natural chemicals or the future of fashion as well. You know, we look at a spider and go, hey, out of dead flies and water, how do you make the strongest fiber known to man? And people have asked that question and we can now make vegan spider silk. Vegan spider silk? Yeah. And so that what they've done is they have learned from the spiders, like what is this material made out of? What are the protein molecules? And then copy it. So it's about learning from nature. We all have the same building blocks of life. We all have the same, you know, polysaccharides and proteins and all this stuff. It's, it's available to every species. And so we've just become so focused on be everything being made out of petrochemicals. So, you know, pretty much everything we wear and the toiletries, and, you know, it's not just driving our car. So we need to re-envision a whole new world of, you know, our packaging, our clothes and everything and start making it out of natural materials. So, yeah, biomimicry is a huge area but it's very exciting and it is totally solutions-based. It is very exciting. I guess the example that comes to my mind is the Valpro example of, you know, how did human beings learn and get the idea of Valpro from nature? And I think the other thing that you're describing with this study is the fact that we, by going back to our natural surroundings, we learn how to live healthier and then we then take it back. So it's an interesting point, actually, just thinking about the Velcro, because, yes, you know, the, the, there was this Swiss guy that noticed how the burrs stuck to his dog and they look under a microscope and they see these little hooks and they create a burdock. 
But if we think of what Velcro is made out of, yeah, it's made out of petrochemicals. So we've got the first step of it, which is the copying nature. But then Velcro is not going to biodegrade like nature does. So, you know, it, the trouble is the humans, we're so young as a species. And, you know, we kind of think we're these great wise ones, whereas, you know, we're just like, you know, kids in nappies still. I mean, we're like toddlers trying to work it out. And um, so we come up with one good idea, but then, you know, you chuck a bit of Velcro on the ground, that's going to be there for hundreds and hundreds of years. So the next part for us is learning, okay, how can we make this but out of a natural cellulose material that will naturally break down and then feed the soil, go back into the system so that we can keep this closed loop system. And, and I think that's a really, that's one of the, the really obvious differences between humans and the natural world, not that we are separate. Whereas in nature, everything is a cycle. Everything is broken down, feeds the next. Whereas in humans, we just like mine it, make it and dump it. So it's a very linear, everything we do, it's mine it, make it, dump it, mine it, make it, dump it. Very, very little goes back into a circular loop and gets recycled or reused. So we've really got to recreate a whole different world so that we can have a closed loop system and that everything we produce is designed to go back into the system. So, yeah, that's kind of our challenge for now of how do we do this? So tell me a bit more about your vision, because I can I'm kind of trying to picture what you your hopes for the world. So what would you like to see from us as humans, society, and the world for the future? Well, I think, first of all, we got to see it, because we ain't going to get nowhere if we can't see the future. And I think many people, and what the media has fed us, like in Hollywood, all of the films are apocalyptic or zombie, or, you know, the future. There isn't any kind of, unless I'm missing one, and if anybody does know of one, please let me know. Um, but any kind of, like, Hollywood positive movies with a great ending and, you know, the future looking really cool and looking really great and uh, looking really green. And uh, actually, it could be amazing when we think of the future of cities. We know that the cities will be green. There is no doubt about that. The walls of the cities will be green, not just the rooftops. And the reason we need vertical green growing walls is not just, yes, it improves air pollution in cities, it's better for your mental health, but also it cools and insulates the buildings. So we are going to need to be getting wise about energy use. We got to, you know, like we got to keep them warm and we got to keep them cool. And so by having living walls, that's a, a really cheap way of being able to do that. So we can already see if we can imagine cities being a lot greener and a lot less concrete um, and a lot better for people's mental health. So, you know, there's a big part of the kind of the vision where it's not like, oh, everybody's going to be driving around an electric car. We need a much better integrated public transport system where there's car sharing, where in fact we share loads of stuff. We move into a sharing society 
I mean, at the moment, you know, everybody's got their own computer and their own drill and their own, you know, like all these gadgets that they may even only use once a year. So, you know, things like tool share, rather than going and buying cheap tools, we need to be sharing them. And so buying less, consuming less, and moving much more into a kind of sharing, renting economy. So, you know, what we can do, you know, obviously the first thing is to buy less stuff. (laughs) Because it all comes, everything we buy, we've got to remember where it came from. It got mined out of the earth, most likely in a pretty destructive way. And then it got processed and the journey of everything that we touch, most of it has not been done in what we would really, you know, love to think as a, you know, kind of harmonious way. So, yeah, I think really getting that through to people of like, you know what, let's buy less, let's love what we've got more and uh, and become really aware of the choices we make. And that's the big one. That is a big one. And I... I earn the fact I'm very conscientious of the fact that that is my my new girl and my uh, the aspect of my life that I have been becoming more aware of and conscientious of in terms of taking steps because I know that I have a pattern of consumerism. Which is totally normal. <laughs> normal. And, you know, I, I can recognise it and recognized during lockdown and recognized during the phase of my life then it has increased and of taking active steps to change that behavior and it's really hard but you know something just now as you were speaking and I was trying to picture this this new vision of the world I can see it and I, I guess when you know what you're working towards and you have this sort of vision in mind, it allows you to make a different sort of choice. And so I think you're right. I think in terms of the media, in terms of our vision, in terms of what we start to picture, potentially having a mind shift, a mind shift in, in that vision will allow all human beings to make better choices. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, we've got to remember that there's a vast amount of money that is spent on advertising and making us feel bad. We are in a world where, you know, the advertising industry and the press, their whole job is to sell us stuff we don't need. And we believe that if I buy it, I'm going to be happy. If I, if I buy it, I'm going to feel better. You know, there's this kind of continual idea of retail therapy and how long does it last? The buzz of buying something is very short lived. Mm-hmm. And actually it can have a spike, which can then go lower afterwards. So, you know, understanding the psychology also of consumerism of that, okay, we have these massive pressures coming to us from a world which is that is what it is like. It is absolutely pushing us to be, you know, we are not like just homo sapiens anymore. We are homo consumers. And that's what we've become. It's true. And we get this dopamine hit and and then we feel it and we feel good and then it passes. But the thing about being in nature 
and feeling the soil, feeling the grass under your feet, is that the dopamine hit lasts longer, it's more continuous, and it's also never ending because it's something that always exists no matter where we are, as long as we turn our attention to it. I think an interesting, something I've noticed working with Indigenous people a lot as well is the simplicity of life. And, and you know, it's, it's amazing that when I compare also, you know, obviously this is, you know, it doesn't go across the board, but when I see the children, how happy they are, you know, they're playing, they're running, they've got no toys but they can make stuff. They can, you know, sticks and stones or whatever they can find. They're running around and they are having fun. And because they're not trapped into the world of stuff and the anxiety that we get from, you know, whatever we've got our phone, someone's going to steal it. Someone's going to rob it. I'm going to drop it. I'm going to lose it. I can't go out without it. You know, this, this attachment that we have to all of our gadgets and all of our stuff. Well, you take, strip that all away to being a human being where we are just actually being rather than just constantly attached to our staff. My, what I've noticed is these people are so much happier. They have so little, but they are so much happier. And there's something we can really learn from their way of life. And I think for me, over these 20 years, seeing living in two worlds, seeing how people in the Amazon live and then coming back to the UK and seeing how people live here and the difference. It's like, well, we got all the stuff, but we sure ain't happier. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I guess it's that attachment to things, you know, the anxiety it brings when they're not around. And that reminder, we just need to, to be in the wilderness sometimes and just to be. And I think it's really important, that whole thing of like really challenging ourselves to, you know, turn off all of our gadgets and, you know, ideally once a week to actually have a day in nature where we just actually be and be really noticing and using our senses because otherwise they're like atrophy, you know, we're not using them. So, hey, you know, like actually if we don't keep a tent, then, you know, a life just turns into a little rectangular box yeah I want to cycle back because one of the other things I was envisioning from your view of the future the live walls the the sharing was the sense of going back to a sense of community and kind of that ecosystem like the forest of all sharing supporting borrowing and kind of give and take in terms of that exchange for resources. Yeah, absolutely. We we know how important that is in a forest, you know, this, this wood wide web beneath our feet, you know, where all the mycelium and the tree roots are all connected and they're constantly sharing nutrients with each other. And when we bring that into a social way of us sharing knowledge and, and information, uh, not money, but talking about, yeah, knowledge and time and how by working in community and giving time voluntarily, there is such a richness in that. And that for you know our social life, we see that people that do voluntary work, and I've definitely noticed this, people that are just doing stuff, not for money, not to get paid, just for the greater good of all. They're the happiest people. So when we come into being with others, we're definitely happier 
because that's what we are meant to be living in tribes. So that is something I totally encourage people. It's like, if, do you know where your local community garden is? And, uh, you know, join it. And if there isn't one, set one up. Because not only are you then growing food, which is really useful, um, but also there's the social aspect of coming together in community and sharing and celebrating together. Yeah, and I guess when you're in that shared community, you also reconnect to the senses you reconnect to just that presence of being outside in a different way than you might not. Yeah. I just looked at the time and as usual, it flew by. So we're gonna start to come to a close, but to end, I just wanna ask you one final question, if that's okay. Yeah. So I know you've been so many beautiful places. So I just want you to describe to us if you can, the most beautiful tree that you have encountered or one of significance and then if it had to impart any wisdom any last final words to us what would it say oh that's a very hard one because there's so many awesome trees I have had the fortune to meet in my life uh, but the one that I am just thinking of, which is the one that came up on my profile picture earlier. Oh, a- we have to stop. We have to describe that to everybody first, because I've got to say, Nicola popped on and I was like, oh, my God, that is a beautiful tree. That was the first thing I said. Yeah. And that is a giant saber tree in the Amazon. And that's what the avatar tree was based on, that tree. And, um, and they believe that, you know, when you die, your spirit goes into this gigantic tree. And when you're standing next to it, you're like a little ant. And when you stand next to really big old trees, I love how it makes me feel so insignificant. And so small. And so unimportant. And how it just puts me in my place of I am just this tiny, tiny little creature on this planet. And as a human, yes, I have so much power. And that be careful about the choices that you make. I think it's curious that it you're like, it makes you happy and you're smiling. And I'm like, to be reminded of your impermanence, your insignificance, your your humanness fills you with joy (laughs) yeah totally (laughs) because sometimes we just think so we think that we humans we're the best and we are like so important and we're so amazing and then you stand next to this giant and it humbles you and it's just like you're just like a little ant I'm just like, yeah, I'm mixed with like a, a odd, like a, oh, I think I'd feel fear or I'd feel conflict about knowing that my time will end. And at the same time, there is a beauty in that. Yeah. And there's also that is mixed with a total awe and reverence. And I think that that is what is lacking so much. And so I encourage people to go find big 
ancient trees because they really kind of touch something in us, the fact that they have lived and will live for so much longer than any mortal human. And so there's some wisdom in these ancient trees. And as you think about that beautiful, ancient, soul-fueled, energetic beauty, what final words would it tell us of today? Be still. That's what they're very good at. Thank you, Nicola, for your time today and for giving it so freely. Yay, thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Be Like a Tree. Let us know how you felt about today. Subscribe, share, every little bit helps. And we'll see you next time. And remember, stay rooted, stand tall, breathe, be like a tree. Cause you're free to be alone.